The occasional comment, the odd pat on the belly, a few non-too-subtle hints about my weight was enough to get me moving about my health. They say about men over the age of 30 that their hairline retreats while their stomach advances. And by the look of some of you this morning, there's plenty of blokes here under the age of 30. The non-too-subtle hint was an invitation to a gym. Chris and Liza Hawley invited me to go along to theirs. I accepted their thoughtful invitation to come. It's nice to have good friends. But unbeknown to me, it wasn't a gym, but a CrossFit torture session. (laughs) It's a place of self-inflicting bodily harm, a pit of sweat and needless suffering. Back in October, I agreed to meet with Chris at 6.30 in the morning, which in itself is some kind of workout. But the class started and everyone seemed so nice, warm, welcoming, friendly, inviting. The class instructor took me under his wing and reassured me that everything would be just fine. And so the class started and two minutes on the exercise bike and I've already busted out in a mild sweat. Some stretches on the floor involving this enormous rubber band, some stretches up against the metal poles had me feeling in places that I thought I'd abandoned forever. A few more exercises, sit-ups, push-ups, planking, stretching, squatting with weights. I looked over to Chris with a sense of completion because I was done. I mean, I was done. He looked back at me and said, how was that? Are you all right? I'm not sure what it was about my body language that made Chris ask me if I was all right. Gasping for air, almost hyperventilating, sweat now running off my rig, a term used by the instructor to refer to my body. Yeah, I'm okay, I said. I've survived. I'm glad it's over. Chris just smiled back at me and said, that was just the (laughs) warm-up. Felt the blood immediately drain from my face. Now, apart from Christmas and a few holidays in January, I've been going regularly ever since. I've noticed some changes in myself. My family has too. Even the class instructor on Wednesday told me that he was proud of me. But what three months of CrossFit has taught me was just how unfit I really was. Completely out of condition. I was in terrible shape, although I thought I was in perfect shape, almost a complete circle. (laughs) But I've been fooling myself about my health. I've been telling myself that I was fit when I was flabby. Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 isn't so much a physical assessment of us, more an examination of our spiritual condition, specifically the spiritual condition of our hearts. Jesus' teaching here exposes our hearts, so here he instructs us how to become cross-fit. Sermon on the Mount is a call to follow Jesus, an invitation to join the community of the crucified. You see, here in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. Here is what it looks like to do discipleship under Jesus. His words cause us to examine and self-reflect upon the spiritual condition of our hearts and to realign our hearts with his kingdom. And it all starts with the Beatitudes, eight or nine characteristics of the good gods. Beatitude has nothing to do with your attitude, as if Jesus only required a change of mood for us, a mood adjustment. The word Beatitude is taken from Latin and it simply means to be blessed or happy. And so according to Jesus, if you've got your Bible there, these people are blessed. This list, these people are blessed in the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't plonk himself up on a mountain and start rattling off a list of do's and don'ts about the kingdom. This isn't more law. This isn't more requirements, more things for us to do. 
Where's the good news in any of that? Now, Jesus' sermon starts with a gathered crowd, and really, you should see the condition that they're currently in. See for yourself, won't you, the crowd? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, the words are here behind me. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, me, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The great crowds now gathered to listen to Jesus, followed him. Why? Because he healed them. And while that might have come, and while they might have come from everywhere, I want you to take a closer look at the shape that they're in. Can you see that there, those verses again? They're not really in great shape, are they? A sea of faces, grey face masks and bandages on ventilators, carrying crutches, stretched out on stretchers. These people are already broken, busted and bleeding, harassed, helpless, hopeless and emotionless. But these are the people that Jesus blesses. He's blessed them. The blessings of the kingdom of God made available to the likes of these unlikely ones. Jesus has attended to their physical needs, but now he really wants to go after their hearts. Jesus isn't simply looking to gather a crowd, friends. He's not interested in attracting attenders. He's looking for apprentices. Jesus teaches the crowd and his disciples what it means to disciple under him. And so Jesus speaks the Beatitudes now, blessings about what it means to belong to God's kingdom. But the problem for us is the word blessed. And that can be a blessed problem, can't it? Because everything that Jesus says in the Beatitudes hangs off this one word, blessed. Swap out the word blessed for happy, like some of our English translations do, and you've got an even bigger blessed problem before you. You see, it's an issue of presupposition. We hear the word happy and we think mood. We hear happy and think go lucky. Like this is some kind of momentary thing that changes with circumstances and determination of the will. We hear a word like blessed and interpret it as luck or good fortune. Now that's a cultural problem for us when it comes to the word blessed and it was a problem for the crowd as well because our ideas about blessing are not God's ideas about blessing. When Jesus speaks of blessing, it's in reference to the orientation of our hearts, what they're aligned to. Even if they've got nothing to show for it, the blessed person is someone here who has a heart for God. Regardless of their status or their cultural conditioning, blessing is about enjoying God's favour. You see, it's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Disturbing because we need to be disrupted. Disorientating because we need to be reorientated. They're unsettling so that we might long for more. It's uncomfortable so that we might be reassured by the promises of God. And besides, it's Jesus, not us, who ultimately determines who is and who isn't blessed in his kingdom. That isn't a call for us to make. So see the first three of the attitudes we're in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble poor, says Jesus. Those who recognise their own spiritual poverty. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the land. That's the promise. These people are spiritual zeros. Spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient. Spiritual beggars who've got nothing but know that they are in need of everything that God could possibly give them. Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope, says Eugene Peterson in the message. When there's nothing of you, there's more room for God and his rule. People who love enough to trust God and to love others enough to build relationships, kingdom relationships based on kingdom values like hope and compassion and mercy and justice. Blessed are those who've lost everything that's dear to them so that they might be embraced by the one that is most dear to them. Those who suffer and love those who are suffering, who grieve their own tragedies, their own injustices and their sin, and yet still in their grieving reach out in compassion to others in pain. They will be comforted, says Jesus. Those who comfort will be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble, he says, not seeking revenge, but the welfare of others, who've accepted who they are and who've stopped striving and competing for more. They will inherit the promises land. They are the recipients of the promises to Abraham. You see, the gathered crowd with all of their physical ailments is the visual illustration of what our spiritual condition is really like. Jesus has healed them physically, but now he's going to go after all of their hearts. You see, these broken and busted people, if you're like that on the inside, if you're blind but can clearly see it, if you know that you don't have one good leg to stand on, the kingdom of God is yours, says Jesus. God's blessing is available to the spiritually poor. But that's not how we see it, is it? It's not how the world sees things. Not many in the church see things this way either. We think instead, blessed to be impressive, who lose competence and charisma, who always seem to know what they're doing and always seem capable of doing it. Blessed to those who seem to have it all and seem to have it all together. But you see, friends, in the economy of God's kingdom, it's the spiritually poor who are blessed. Blessed because they trust God, willingly waiting for justice to come with the kingdom that is coming. Blessed because of their deep devotion to God, mourning Israel's condition and their own part in it. There's so much more to say here, but Jesus says a whole lot more. Look there with me, my you? At verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness speaks of an internal desire within us, a longing appetite for God and more of him. To love God and to seek his will in everything, with everything, it's all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength. Never satisfied with what the world's menu offerings of oversized portions of food and pleasure and passions and lust. Not content with simply being bloated, but only in doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. 
You see, those who long for communion with God, who will, who will find satisfaction in their blessings from him, is what Jesus is offering. The merciful are those who do unto others as they have done unto them. Because they've experienced God's love and mercy and know his forgiveness, compassion and grace, they extend that same mercy they've received to other people. And they do it because they know that they are people who need mercy for themselves. It's not niceness, not tolerance, not putting up with it. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But concrete expressions of love and compassion and grace. The blessing of those who show mercy, see it there, is that God will show mercy to them at the final judgment. Those who hunger and thirst and show mercy, like them, the pure in heart, are in pursuit of God. They don't do things for show. They're not looking for recognition or reward, at least not from other people anyway. They only seek the pleasure of the audience of one the one who owns the kingdom in heaven. They know that man looks on the outward appearance, but they also know that God looks on the heart. And so their hearts are inclined towards the kingdom of God, where the promise of his blessing is that they will see him. Again, that's not how the world sees it, is it? And not many in the church see it this way either. We're just about everything we do is impure laced with false, mixed or impure motives, where things are done for show, for the acclamation of spectators and admirers. It's the game of outward appearances, and it's the game of keeping up appearances that might provide you with momentary rewards. But are you truly satisfied with just momentary rewards? The plaudits and the applause of the approval of others provides no credit in the kingdom of God. But Jesus says more. Look there at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not the cheesemakers, not the pacemakers, Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Not peacekeepers, not those who want to keep things nice, not those who want to tolerate things, not those who manage situations. People who don't rock the boat or upset the apple cart. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He kicked over plenty of apple carts, didn't he, Jesus? when he turned, the, turned over the tables in the temple courts. Peace, uh, peacemakers aren't the same as peacekeepers. Peacemakers make peace. They don't keep it. Peacemakers is a peacemaker. who Jesus is a peacemaker too. He came to make peace for all of us. But peace isn't the absence of trouble or conflict or strife or war. The biblical idea of peace, friends, is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace, and it certainly just doesn't mean hello. Shalom means restoration, it means wholeness, it means repair, it means completion. And that's what Jesus came to do for us, isn't it? 
He came to repair our relationship with God. He comes to restore and to make us whole. His death on the cross for us completely satisfies all of God's judgment on our sin. The peacemaking Son of God comes to make us sons of God too. Blessed are those, says Jesus, who do the same as him. You see, the goal of the follower of Jesus is always shalom, reconciliation, restoration, restore and repair, never retaliation or retribution or revenge or overreaction. Those who apprentice under Jesus as his disciples will be like him and do what he says, which is why they'll be persecuted like him too. And just like the prophets who came before him. If we're going to live like Jesus, if we're going to be people who put his words into action, then we need to expect the same opposition that he faced. Put down, thrown out, lied about, discredited by others. So blessed are the persecuted, says Jesus, that he even blesses them twice. Great is their reward, bears the kingdom of heaven. You see, peacemakers and the persecuted are also people who are in pursuit of the kingdom of God. Despite what others want, despite what other people say about them, because of their unwavering love for God, they remain faithful even when they're oppressed. They cannot do anything that's different. Unreservedly now, they they followed Jesus because they've abandoned everything else for him. I know that many in the church don't see things this way. And so the world doesn't get it either. Because here's what the world says it looks like to be successful. Here's how to be good and to get ahead. Don't rock the boat. Give them what they want. Keep them happy. Play it safe. But can I ask you, is that what you hear Jesus saying here? Is that what you see Jesus doing And so here now is my problem, friends, and maybe it's your problem too. Once we've given ourselves to Jesus completely and left everything in pursuit of him and his kingdom, we actually pass the point of no return. There is nothing else for us to live for anymore. The world holds nothing for us. The praise and recognition of other people won't cut it. Doing things for show and approval and acceptance will never satisfy us anymore. Because we hunger and thirst after God. And we seek him first and his kingdom first. Even though it might cost us everything, we still recklessly pursue him. Because we know we need him. Realising the extent of our own spiritual needs and that only Jesus can remedy us. That's what the Beatitudes are about. You know, I mean, apart from Jesus sitting on this mountain, this isn't anyone else's idea of blessing, is it? But this is the upside-down kingdom of blessing where lives get turned upside down as well, along with priorities and pursuits and desires and commitments. These words that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount and in these Beatitudes, they are disturbing because we need disturbing. They are disorientating so that we might reorientate ourselves and our hearts towards the kingdom. His words, his teaching, it's unsettling so that we might long for more of him 
instead of the things of this world. And it's uncomfortable so that we might be reassured of his promises. And so I simply want to ask you this morning, if you see yourself in the crowd, if you've identified yourself as being broken and busted and at the end of your rope too, then here's Jesus inviting you into his kingdom. Not just sitting on the edge of things, not just occasionally enjoying the benefits of his blessings, but to be an apprentice to Jesus. To put into practice the things that he says and to live the way he's calling us to live. You see, friends, the paradigm shift that we need to make if we're going to follow Jesus is to move from simply being attendants to being apprentices.